0: NIV is a bit of a game changer isn't it? We've saved countless lives and we know perfectly well what we're doing now don't we? Do we? Let's go and find out. Hello 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. This is episode number 70 something or other. Like I said last time I'm losing count now so let's stop counting. Um, I'm very lucky in this episode to be joined by a few colleagues, some who may be joining us later because they're having trouble t- uh, problems getting to me. Um, but I am do- joined by uh, Dr. Mark Juniper and by Vicky Mummery. Um, and we are going to discuss uh, one of the recent NCPod uh, reports that was released on the 13th of July of this year. And this was entitled Inspiring Change, a review of the quality of care provided to patients receiving acute non-invasive ventilation. Um, It doesn't involve um, non-invasive ventilation um, for people who have it at home. This was purely non-invasive ventilation for those in hospital. Um, And it was really a, a breakdown of how well we're doing it. And it was structured in such a way that there was four aspects to it. First of all was the prompt recognition of respiratory failure and rapid initiation of NIV. Did we do that well or not? Secondly, documentation and management of settings. Third, escalation of uh, treatment decisions and planning, including admission to critical care. And then finally, organisational aspects of care delivery for NIV. I'm not gonna say too much more because um, we have Mark on the other end who was very involved in this project. How much of this of your life has this taken up recently,
1: Mark? Oh gosh, uh, how much it's taken up? Uh, of the last two years I must have spent hmm, several months involved with this uh, directly both running meetings and then writing the report so yeah it's been pretty um, all-consuming but hopefully worthwhile because we found some uh, I think pretty impressive findings uh, that will hopefully lead to changes and improvements in care. Why did you get involved in particular? Um, well so I have worked with NCPOD for the last six years as a clinical coordinator and um, one of the things that uh, I identified uh, a little while ago was that uh, part of my own clinical practice as a respiratory and intensive care consultant um, was non-invasive ventilation and the national audit, the British Thoracic Society audit, was showing deteriorating results. So, actually, I got together with Mike Davis, who's the national audit lead, and we co wrote a proposal with the British Thoracic Society to run this study. Uh, basically, because the national audit had started to show worsening mortality rates, and it was unclear why, and there was a suspicion about a whole series of areas why there may be worsening mortality. Um, but we needed to explore that in detail, and the Uh, the NCPOD method which involves detailed case note analysis um, helps to explore those details and has certainly helped to answer some of those questions.
0: Okay Um, and presumably some of those questions were were basically the ones that I just uh, read points one to four was the questions that you needed to to be answered there really. Um, Now most of the patients in the study um, and I I don't want to break down the study as if we were in a a conference here let's make it a a bit more dynamic than that. But most of the patients in the study, 70% of them were COPD patients. Um, And NIV, interestingly enough, was given for pneumonia in 12% of the cases as well. Um, Of those patients with COPD, 97.5% of them were ex or current smokers. Um, And interestingly, again, obesity hypoventilation is becoming a bigger issue. And this is something that I was speaking to um, Nick Hart about down in London. Um, and he's quite interested in obesity hyperventilation. So it's interesting that that's becoming a bigger feature and it's something that you identified as well. Um, the COPD patients, um, is, is this the only patients we should be treating with NIV? Is that something that came through in the study? Should we be teaching, treating uh, pneumonia patients with NIV? I think guidelines have said in the past that we shouldn't.
1: Okay, well So, what we found was very similar to what we found in the series of of British Thoracic Society audits. So, 70% of patients have COPD, and COPD is the area where acute NIV delivered on general hospital wards has been shown to improve outcomes. So, COPD is absolutely the group of patients who should receive this treatment. Um, As you've said, we see increasing numbers of obese patients with hypoventilation. And that's another group of patients who actually require, potentially require, long-term ventilation with non-invasive. So uh, that is a group of patients when they present acutely to hospital. Again, it's entirely appropriate to treat them with non-invasive ventilation. You asked the question about pneumonia. Um, Interestingly, the 2016 guidelines on management of acute hypercapnic respiratory failure uh, state that NIV is not indicated in patients with pneumonia, and I think there's there's subtlety that sits behind that statement because there's clearly a difference between a patient who presents with COPD with a, a little bit of consolidation on their x-ray and that drives them into ventilatory failure and for them NIV is absolutely the right treatment. whereas a patient who a, a fit young patient with no other comorbid condition, who presents with lobar pneumonia, the right treatment for that patient if they have ventilatory failure is invasive ventilation. So there's a, there's a quite a distinction between that those, those two ends of the spectrum and there's probably everything in between in our clinical practice. And actually the, the reviewers that come into the, the NCPOD office and review the case notes, actually what they showed in the review when they um, declared whether they felt that the NIV was an appropriate intervention for any individual patient, was in 75% of patients who had evidence of pneumonia, they still felt that NIV was an appropriate intervention. So it's quite commonly used and is appropriate, but we need to be careful that we define whether NIV is being used um, in well as a ceiling of treatment, or whether it's being used as the prime modality of treatment for patients, and if they have, as I say. Uh, a clear diagnosis of pneumonia. We should be careful in that group of patients to, not to think that NIV is is the is the first line of treatment.
0: Okay, so I, I think a, a certain element of pragmatism has to be applied, as with many other things that we do in the health
1: service. Well, like I guess this, it's just... uh, yeah. I guess it's true to say. So guidelines are guidelines, aren't they? And they're designed to try and help us make decisions, uh, but. It's not as cut and dried as to say we should not treat patients with pneumonia with non-invasive ventilation. They can have a good outcome, but we should be careful what group of patients we select. And actually, we came up with some some data which I think helps people or should help people in terms of decision-making about, uh, about who they treat and who they don't treat with NIV.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get back to that because um, I we were discussing before we started the episode that I was listening to your presentation earlier on this afternoon, and I think one of the summary slides is one that uh, you refer to, isn't it? Really, which is a good guide for some of the uh, yeah. some of the more uh, the, shall we say the more senior junior doctors to be carrying around in their pockets. Um, and interestingly, as well, um, the I think it's the clinical frailty score um, actually seemed quite high at times to me. We were talking six to nine, which equates to. Moderate to severe frailty, um I mean a nine is actually somebody who's terminally ill. Um and it's it seemed that there were a lot of patients in this category. Is that something that you um felt was a key feature of this, or is it just the nature of the population that's coming through hospital these days?
1: I think it is the nature of well, no, I think it's the nature of the patients that receive NIV. Um, Actually, interestingly, I was at the Society for Acute Medicine um, uh, meeting uh, just recently in, in Birmingham, and they presented data from the SAMBA audit, which is the Audit of admissions in, in Acute Medicine. And actually, uh, when you look at the frailty scores of patients in general admitted to hospital acutely, um, it's about 18% of them have a frailty score of between 6 and 9, whereas here we had about 57% of our patients had a frailty score of uh, between six and nine. So these are a much more frail group of patients than the average patient being admitted to hospital, um, and so that that clearly has an impact on their overall likelihood of well, likelihood of survival versus death. Um, and I think it is specific to the group of patients that end up requiring NIV. Vicky, from your point
0: of view, just tell me a little bit about your role. Um, your, uh, where, where do you work? How much NIV do you encounter in your working life at the moment?
2: So um, I'm actually a respiratory physio by background, um, and I'm currently working at Imperial um, Healthcare Trust at St Mary's in Paddington. But I'm actually doing um, a new role, which is a um, project manager role for NIV quality improvement. Um, so, myself and my colleague, and um, Dr. Susanna Block, who's one of the respiratory consultants there, were both actually case reviewers for the NCE Pod report. And we um, have since set up a year long project which has been externally funded to improve the quality of the acute NIV service at Imperial. How? So, in terms of um, using quality improvement methods, so looking at the problem that we wanted um to to focus on, and um, using things like an action effect diagram whereby you get a group of stakeholders, so those people involved in delivering acute NIV, so across different healthcare professionals, including patients that may or may not have yet experienced NIV, and improving the service based on patient experience, clinician experience, um And then we have some different work streams within the project that we're trying to improve. Um, And a lot of it is based on co-design with patients. The patient's telling us once they've had NIV how we can improve the service for them.
0: Okay. So how far down this route are you? Are you towards the end of this now? Or are you just um, at some other point?
2: Yeah. So the project actually started in December last year. Um, and the initial funding is for the year, but with the view that we have a sustainability plan to continue embedding the um, developments that we've implemented. So, for example, things are we've developed a care bundle on the computer system that's used at Imperial, um, which focuses on making sure that appropriate patients are being put on NIV, that they've been provided with appropriate information, that they've had a ceiling of care set, um, and that they're in the right clinical area. Um, and we've also been developing um, improved patient information. So patients have told us that they want to be educated about NIV. And so we're developing ways that we can improve that education and awareness for them.
0: Okay, I mean, that's I kind of got ahead of ourselves a little bit there because an awful lot of what you said seems to um, be backed up a little bit by the NCPOD inquiry here. Um, So I'm just skipping ahead a a little bit, Mark, Um, one of the, there were several key points that came out of the study when I was reading it today, um, and I think I I don't necessarily want to be, spend the whole of this chat being negative about some of the findings, Mm -hmm. but there are some negative findings to discuss, and I'm presuming this is going to guide current and future practice, so I think it's important that we do um, talk about those. Some of the problems, um, one first and foremost that I've got several stars by is that um, uh, almost all the clinical leads, because one of the recommendations um, is that there is a clinical lead for the NIV service, um, and almost all the clinical leads that you surveyed were respiratory physicians. um, But one of the key problems is that whilst the clinical leads were identified, they weren't actually being given any time uh,
1: to do the role. So almost universally people are not given time to, to be the lead. Um, and actually it's worth mentioning as well that there's a medical lead in the majority of hospitals, mostly with no time. Uh, there is a, a, a non-medical, so either a nursing or a physiotherapy lead in close to half of hospitals. Um, but actually this is about a multi-professional approach to, to treatment. And I'm interested Vicky's running this quality improvement program, actually one of the things that you hear when you discuss with people how they run some of the excellent services that there are out there, it is about a multi-professional approach and also a multi-specialty approach. So it's not expected that this is just something that's going to be run by respiratory physicians, Um, that actually some of the models that work very well are run by a specialist team that might be a physiotherapy-led team or might be a multi-professional team from a, a variety of different groups. So different people have different models of care that can work very well yeah, I mean, I've seen it run in many different ways as well.
0: Um, one of the hospitals I worked at recently had the physio-led model, which I thought worked extremely well, um, obviously with um, medical input as well. So yeah, I've seen it work. Um, I've also seen it work on a fairly ad hoc basis, which doesn't work so well, funnily enough. Another one of the points that came out of the study, and this is something that, um, again, made me prick my ears was a little bit, was 45% of um, staff, um, are practicing, are supervising NIV patients without any defined competency at all. Now, am I to assume, um, you may not know this in great detail, but am I to assume that these people are basically caring for NIV patients with no real formal training? Is that is that the implication from that?
1: So I'm not sure that's that's necessarily the implication. So people may be receiving some training, but they don't necessarily have a defined competencies that says they have achieved a level where they are they should be able to give these patients support. So there's a proportion of hospitals can't remember off the top of my head, but there's a proportion of hospitals that do not have a competency. But then there is a proportion of hospitals who have a competency, but still allow staff that don't have that competency to uh, supervise these patients directly. So overall, that's where the figure of 45% there's 45% of hospitals will allow staff who either well who do not have a defined competency to to care for these patients and and actually just going back to the whole the the thing about designing your team it's all about having the skills to do this it's the knowledge and skills and that's we're we're so focused on competency-based um approaches in medicine and nursing these days it seems crazy that we haven't uh, we haven't managed to achieve that in patients receiving niv where uh, they are high-risk patients. Many of them die, and if it goes wrong, it can go wrong badly. Um, and so, actually, some very basic standards uh, of well, to set some standards is absolutely key to make sure these patients receive good treatment.
0: So, Vicky, how are you approaching that?
2: So, in terms of all of the things that we've been trying to implement, we we have a large, large data set. Um, that we track everything around. So we, the things that we've been implementing, we've been to see if they affect our data, so things looking at patient mortality, where the patients are being treated, um, looking um at making sure that the right people are being put on NIV. So all of those um, things that we're implementing, we've been tracking along with our data, so with each NIV episode, to see if any of them are making a difference whether we need to change our approach on how we're improving the service.
0: So how are your staff trained at the moment?
2: So at the moment, a big part of our project was around standardising training and education. So when we initially started the project, we found that within the Trust, there was loads of individual training going on um, and not necessarily um, sort of coming together. So we've developed a multi-professional sort of education programme and we've standardised that um, that teaching. We've also developed some multi professional competencies, which have been reviewed by different clinicians working across different clinical areas that provide acute NIV, so that everyone is working off the same page. And all of these are available um, on our internal um, website page.
0: Okay, I just. I'll I'll come to I'll come to the question. There's one big question I want to ask at the end of this, which um, you just triggered in my head a little bit there. But I'll come back to the at the end of that. Um, now okay. I think one of the other points that we need to discuss, and and this questions aimed at you, Mark, is that um, again some of these figures that come out of here. Um, it, this was obviously um, this was often the report comparing what the reviewers felt as to what the actual clinicians felt. Um, So when I say uh, by the reviewers, that's what I mean. Um, But there was um, one in five cases uh, were deemed inappropriate for NIV by the reviewers. And again, this was uh, pneumonia mainly, um, like I said earlier, possibly not indicated according to recent guidelines, um, and advanced terminal illness as well. That um, often what's happening is that um, patients are being put on NIV and um, that care is being withdrawn um, when the patient has been reviewed by a senior clinician. How can we, how can we address this issue whereby NIV is being used inappropriately in um, what twenty percent of cases?
1: Okay, so I I think i just be careful that there are two reasons that it was deemed inappropriate two separate reasons one reason was that this was not a treatment for this patient as in they did not need ventilation or ventilation was felt to be inappropriate there was a group a small group about uh, 17 patients where the reviewer felt that actually non-invasive ventilation delayed uh, invasive ventilation so there's a group of patients who clearly need ventilation who may be patients with pneumonia for instance who we shouldn't be using NIV, we should be invasively ventilating them in the intensive care unit. But the biggest group was this group with terminal illness who um, actually, if you if you want to describe the situation, what happens is that the patient may have been in hospital for a couple of weeks, they deteriorate during the hospital admission, they may be on an elderly care ward and uh, in the middle of the night somebody makes a decision having done a blood gas that reveals ventilatory failure, which actually means that the patient is probably dying, they make the decision to put them onto onto non-invasive, transfer them to the respiratory unit, and then the next morning when the respiratory consultant comes around, the treatment is stopped because it's deemed not to be appropriate. One of the problems I see that there is in the system about this is that the person that starts the patient on treatment doesn't actually routinely get any feedback about that. And I'm intrigued to know what uh, what the team at at Imperial are doing in terms of the quality improvement approach because I, I suppose that's what I'm meaning when I'm talking about people working in a, a wider multi-professional team actually if you start to feedback uh, and if you if you do that as part of a quality improvement project actually you increase the knowledge and skills base of everyone around you and people stop making the bad decisions or are less likely to make the bad decisions and so immediately you might be improving, um, improving your outcomes because the patient who is going to die now doesn't receive the treatment. Of course that doesn't improve overall outcomes because the patient still, still dies but actually there's some other important pieces of the jigsaw where um, for instance if hospitals are running out of NIV machines and you're allocating one to a patient who really shouldn't have used it then you don't have a machine available for another patient so I think there's quite a wide conversation about that, that, that any quality improvement project should be, well, should be participating in. Mm. Vicky, thoughts?
2: So in terms of, um, I, from that I got in terms of like reflecting on practice, on reflecting on sort of case studies of of what's been happening so we try to use case studies within our education at imperial so the standardized program that we've developed training program that we've developed we try to use um case studies whereby people can reflect and learn on them and we don't necessarily go up to specific sort of clinicians as such but do a more sort of general in our teaching programs and particularly within the areas in imperial where um niv acute niv is provided we do share um the data that we have been collecting within the project, and try and disseminate that to those sort of key key areas and key clinicians, um, to try and sort of show um how what our outcomes are um and what we've been trying to trying to do.
0: So just to move on a little, um, then Mark. Um, The potential for improved non ventilator management in 32 percent of patients um, was agreed by both clinicians and reviewers so actually improving the care before they actually get anywhere near niv was something that was also highlighted in this study is is this you can't necessarily relate this just to the patient who's obviously having niv i would imagine that you could possibly say this about a lot of patient groups but was this a particular concern with this patient group do you think?
1: Yes I think it was um, because the conclusion was that if the patient had been managed better or differently then NIV could have been avoided and actually the biggest issue here was about oxygen therapy. Um, the number of patients that come in of course the standard of, standard of care Uh, when dealing with an acutely ill patient is often to give them high concentrations of oxygen, although, of course, there's increasing evidence that in certain circumstances that's probably not very good. Um, And in a patient with COPD who might be prone to ventilatory failure, if they're given 100% oxygen or or whatever in the ambulance and they arrive in hospital with an oxygen saturation of 98%, um, that could be provoking ventilatory failure um, as part of the treatment they receive, actually giving them controlled oxygen therapy uh, can help bring them out of ventilatory failure. So the combination of poor use of controlled oxygen therapy, an incredibly low number of patients received oxygen via Venturi, um, and a very high proportion of patients were felt to be oxygen toxic, more than a quarter of the overall cohort of patients. So it's a really, really common problem giving too much oxygen to patients with, in particular, the patient with COPD. Uh, and then also nebulizer treatment, which is a is a key part of the, the treatment for these, these patients. Uh, again, often a feeling that they weren't being given quite enough time to, uh, to get better, and they were probably going to get better just with controlled oxygen and nebulizer treatment. Having said that, I would always prefer to err on the side of giving the treatment in that situation with non-invasive ventilation rather than delaying too long because delay in treatment was another big finding. In yeah the study.
0: And, and I think one of the things that is highlighted there as well that um, uh, I think four fifths of the NIV was started before a specialist review and often the treatment was changed and in fact in more than half of the patients the, the treatment was then changed. Uh, And then more than half of the time, uh, there was also a change in ventilator settings. So I think one of the things that comes up a little bit later is that uh, once patients are actually put on NIV, they are not then managed particularly well whilst they're on the NIV. I think there seems to be a lack of understanding of what EPAP and IPAP are actually meant to be achieving and the means by which one changes the ventilator settings to as a, as, a, as a consequence of what you've seen from the blood gas, for example. Um, so um, the EPAP, for example, the recommendations that it's, it's four or five, um, some were actually started higher than that. And there was one in 20 that was started above six. Um, and then this EPAP was gradually increased so that eventually you had one in six that were having an EPAP of over six, even though the recommendations are four or five. To me that that just would infer and there were similar problems with the IPAP which I'll talk about in a minute, but that would just infer that people aren't necessarily completely sure what they're doing with the settings on the ventilator
1: once the patient is on it. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is. I I, I personally think I wouldn't overinterpret the EPAP data. I think the IPAP data absolutely clearly shows that people don't really know what, don't know what they're doing. I think um, we didn't quite have enough uh, numbers to drill into the data about expiratory pressure well enough, because there will be a group of patients, especially obesity, hypoventilation, who will need a higher expiratory pressure because they've got a bit of obstructive sleep apnea, for instance. But actually, the bottom line is for, for patients who, for general patients, who are started on NIV, we should set an expiratory pressure, and if we're ever, ever thinking about changing it, we should think this is starting to get into the realms of specialist review. I need some senior person who really understands this to guide me because I'm not quite sure what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. Okay, Vicky, as, as far as your, and I don't wanna
0: keep picking on your trust, but obviously this is something that you're uh, very interested in, in your trust. As far as your trust is concerned, do you think there's a lack of awareness of what actually NIV is there to do and what the settings are intended to achieve when you change them?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely like, definitely true. Um, and that's what we've really tried to address in our in our teaching. One of the things we have tried is um, based on staff um, experience, we ran a large staff experience survey um, of people's understanding of NIV. And out of that, um, we developed a trust algorithm, very similar to the BTS one, um, just slightly more relevant to the trust. Um, and we've basically detailed everything on there and stuck that on all of our ventilators across the trust so that it's kind of a, a quick reference point for when people are setting up NIV, that they have a bit more sort of in-hand guidance to follow through the pathway and know when to refer for specialist review, for example, or um, to try and increase their understanding of what they're changing on the machine and what that might mean in terms of um, the patients' blood gases. Um, so we're trying to trying to develop approaches that suit the staff um, at at Imperial that are are setting up NIV to try and make it sort of safer for patients and ensuring that we're given sort of the correct treatment in the right way.
0: Okay, so it it strikes me that um, this is something that needs to be addressed. And I want to go back to the IPAP issue as well, because this is something that uh, Mark has referred to as well, that Um, IPAP the intention is that one starts uh, between um, 10 to 15 of IPAP um, and that was done approximately 70% of the time and it should then be increased quickly depending on um, um, how well one starts to reduce the patient's um, CO2 load Um, and there was um, a a tendency to increase the inspiratory pressure Um, but um, Unfortunately, 40% never achieved 20 or above of IPAP, and, and 20 would eventually be considered a kind of normal level for this kind of patient. So there was still a big percentage. And I think there was one example, Mark, wasn't there, where a patient actually never got above 14, um, started on 12, went all the way up to the dizzy heights of 14, was, was um, acidotic. And uh, remain drowsy, um, and yet nothing else was done. Now that's uh, one case, um, but I get the impression that that's not something that happens in isolation. And again, to me, that implies a lack of understanding of what NIV is there to do and what you're trying to
1: achieve. Yeah, I think so. so I think it's I think it's probably complicated. I suspect that one of the reasons um, for that happening maybe organisational as well, in that patients are being looked after uh, on wards uh, without any enhanced uh, ratios of staff and so actually they are put on the NIV, it's assumed that it'll do its job and some and people walk away and there's not a huge amount of supervision. I think mm-hmm. that, well, the original guidelines that were written, well the 2008 non-invasive ventilation guidelines actually encourage starting at a low pressure because it's important to make sure that the patient is tolerating the treatment and that the mask is not uncomfortable, and the 2016 guidelines have have changed such that they uh, recommend increasing the pressure more rapidly than the old guidelines used to, of course people will uh, learn the new guidelines slowly. So I think that there have been nudges in the system that make people more reluctant to turn the pressure up. And I think also Actually, as masks have improved over the last decade, we are getting much more used to delivering higher pressures anyway. So, uh, I think there is a poor understanding of the fact that it's your inspiratory pressure, essentially. If you're not going to change the expiratory pressure, it's the inspiratory pressure that's going to deliver the increased size of breath and therefore help eliminate CO2. And uh, I think there are a number of factors that stop people doing that including poor knowledge, but also including, as I say, um, staffing and then a guideline that has maybe erred on the side of discouraging people from increasing the pressure too quickly. Mm. And actually, now I think we need to be moving towards encouraging people to to turn the pressure up. Okay. Um, And interestingly, um, the report
0: again then goes to say that, you know, um, 40% of the patients never had appropriate settings on their NIV and this was the reviewer's opinion. And there was an, another figure that came up later that there was room for improvement in decision making about ventilator management in 60.4% of those patients. So, you know, almost two thirds of the patients um, could have had some um, improvement made um, had it been uh, addressed. Again, and I, I, I I feel like I'm being very negative about this report, Mark, and I don't mean to be, but it does seem to have a lot of elements in there that need to be addressed um, reasonably quickly, I would have thought. So
1: I I don't think you're being negative. I think um, we set out to identify the areas that need to improve. So by definition, we're talking about the things that we have identified where something needs to improve. Actually, if we ask very global questions about was there any aspect of ventilator management that could have been improved. When you drill down into all the individual bits of ventilator management that could be done better, then actually a global question will always get you quite a, a, a strong answer. But the bottom line is that that these patients are not receiving reliable, good care, and we need to make sure we do stuff to improve that. And if this can be one of the triggers to help that happen. Um, my dream would be, in the future, we'll have a national audit that shows that we've got improving outcomes and that we are delivering um, better pressures to treatment in an environment where they can be cared for adequately. Absolutely,
0: and I, um, I would imagine that with the right approach, that that will happen. Just to carry on with the report, though, um, and uh, uh, Vicky, this is something that presumably you encounter in your trust as well, that you've seen. Um, patients who um possibly could have improved if the ipap and the epap had been adjusted correctly if the amount of oxygen had been put on if they'd taken blood gases appropriately and the guidelines have changed slightly about that they used to recommend i think it was one hourly four hourly and 12 hourly wasn't it for blood gases and now they've just had uh, as clinically indicated basically so they've left the option open so it isn't quite as strict as it used to be but How do you find uh, this is something you've had to address is the, um, I hesitate to say it's constantly a lack of knowledge because like Mark quite rightly says, it's sometimes the fact that they're in an appropriate area. Uh, Interestingly, that was something that also that came upon the report um, that I'm just trying to whiz back to my figures here that interestingly, 14% of hospitals, um, um, in 14% of hospitals the intensive care unit does all the NIV so the NIV is nowhere else Um, but in 15% of hospitals the intensive care unit doesn't do any NIV at all. Now I'm in a hospital with the latter case, what's the practice at your hospital Vicky and is that something that you think needs to change or is it something that you just need to adapt and adjust to?
2: Yeah so obviously with Imperial it has um, three acute sites so it is slightly different on each site but Predominantly at Mary's, so um there are there is a what we call a medical HDU which will take NIV, which um has um been set up so it has enhanced nursing staff um and is um an area where acute NIV patients can go, and we do encourage that um those patients that may be on the respiratory uh, ward that do deteriorate get moved down there. Um, and our ICU at St Mary's does also provide NIV. Um, there is a lot of work going on around sort of ensuring those patients are cohorted. There are a couple of other HDUs within the trust or with, on, the, on the Mary's site that can provide NIV that um, aren't a medical HDU. Um, so there's lots of different um, areas to kind of, for us to target with improving the service. Um, and we are trying to ensure that those patients are cohorted, like you said, and not randomly popping up on NIV across different wards where people maybe aren't um, as um, has, have an enhanced skill set to look after those patients safely.
0: Yeah, OK. I mean, it's it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because like you just said, that you've got three hospitals in the same trust. And each hospital does it slightly differently, so I'm not quite sure how we're ever going to get a national standard for this, uh,
1: whether we should actually. So, well, I, I think, I think it's, worth, it's worth pointing out, actually, that, that the national guidelines suggest that you would expect approximately 20% of NIV episodes to take place in critical care. So if you're trying to plan a service, however you're going to plan it, you, you may want to set up a respiratory high care unit of some description. You may want to do things on the ward. What matters is to have the skill set, but what also matters is that you should expect that there will be a group, about a fifth of patients, who will end up needing a higher level of monitoring, a higher level of care because um, of the degree of, the the severity of illness that they have. Um, Some of the statistics
0: you came out with at the end, also very interesting. Um, there was um, obviously the first hour was very effective in the removal of CO two in the, um, the the managed um, NIV patient. Um, there was things like the pH difference was no difference. The pH didn't really change between those that survived and those that didn't. Um, And those that um, tended to survive, tended to normalize their pH to a degree as well. But interestingly, um, the mean was 22 hours to normalize the pH, Um, and I think you were a little bit surprised at that, from what I gathered uh, of what you were saying earlier.
1: Yeah, so I I was surprised. I think we've been very focused on measuring the blood gases at 1, 4 and 12 hours, Um, and I was surprised by the length of time it takes for the blood gas to normalise. Having said that, of course, you only know that the blood gas is normalised when you check the blood gas. So it may be that these patients have got better, got better a, a bit more quickly than that. But yes, it was a surprising length of time it took for the, uh, for the blood gas to normalise. I guess you might be going to uh, go on to talk about the physiology and the, the heart rate and respiratory rate responses. Because actually that was the thing that I found quite striking and maybe slightly unexpected was that those were the factors that were more able to help distinguish between the patient that was going to do well and the patient that wasn't going to do well.
0: Okay, so we don't necessarily um, need to rely on blood gases quite so heavily when we've got figures proving that some of the more simple measures were helpful, but also one of the things that came from the report was um, I put here basically could monitoring have been improved and I put in capitals yes because I think that was the feeling that I got from the report
1: yeah okay. absolutely um, so, so blood both, both blood gas monitoring was felt not to be done frequently enough and also vital science monitoring is not felt to be done frequently enough okay in a large group okay I,
0: it, it, I find myself a little exasperated sometimes because you know we've been doing new scoring and new scoring and all kinds of scoring since probably about the year 2000 and we had critical care without walls and we've had outreach teams and yet still we don't seem to be monitoring our patients particularly well um it's a bugbear of mine but um, there are multi reasons for it I I'm-, I'm sure um as 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 far as uh, deterioration can is concerned um there was um uh, action was taken. Um, action taken in response to deterioration was not appropriate in twenty three point nine percent of patients. Now you have to forgive me here, Mark. I'm not sure whether that was that was inappropriately too active or inappropriately not active enough. What What was
1: the main finding there? Um, this was essentially not active enough. Um, these were deteriorating patients with a rising respiratory rate worsening acidosis, becoming unconscious, agitated, and um, they were, um, there may have been a clinical review, and that was the most common intervention, was a clinical review, but uh, there was room for improvement in changing ventilator uh, settings, not surprisingly, based on what we've already said about ventilator settings, um, uh, and uh, decision-making, including um earlier decision making about stopping treatment but but actually broadly this was about not escalating the level of treatment the patient was receiving, not responding in a way that was going to resolve their worsening respiratory rate, worsening acidosis, falling falling conscious level, the like.
0: And were you able to drill down to the level of why the response wasn't appropriate? Was it was it a human factor? Was it a lack of understanding? Was it an organizational thing? Or was it just a combination of those things?
1: Uh, so the uh, simple answer to that is no, we weren't able to, because if you're doing case note review, you can only make certain judgments. Um, so I am sure it would be due to a combination of those things. Uh, and if running a Quality improvement projects to try and deliver this in an individual hospital that would those would be all the things that you'd want to address to try and improve practice okay um,
0: and probably that would improve practice in an awful lot of areas anyway isn't it you know whatever we tend to be weak in it, it tends to be those that often you know, ugly head now I'm trying to um, get to one of the slides that you referred to um, because I think it was a very useful slide and it's one that you said in your talk that you would like your doctors to laminate and stick in their pocket. And that was basically the um, the um, summary data where there was the difference between those patients that did well and those patients that didn't. And of course, whilst I'm trying, oh no, it's open now. Just bear with me one moment. We'll edit out the uncomfortable silence when it does open. Because I did want to talk about this, because I think this is a really interesting slide. And I think if anybody takes anything else away from this study and doesn't want to hear about any other part of it this is something that they should all look at because this really kind of sums up some of the issues and our talk.
1: yeah so that, that's table 9.10 in the report in chapter 9
0: yes that's the one factors associated with mortality in patients treated with NIV and you've got it separated into two columns and I'll put this in the show notes as well so people can see it but we've got better prognosis and worse prognosis and some of it it's It's probably no more than stating the bleeding obvious, but it's the study that tells us that this is the case. So early NIV, that which um, is started within 24 hours, and that again is one of the recommendations, uh, leads to a better prognosis than late NIV. And that's quite substantial. Got a mortality of 25.1 versus a mortality of 55.4. I'm not going to work my way down the whole slide because there's an awful lot of information on here but there's things like a better prognosis is as a consequence of niv being started in the emergency department or acute medical department as opposed to somewhere else uh, it's a better prognosis for those with copd as opposed to a non-obstructive pulmonary disease uh, if your ph is lower um, you're less likely to survive Um, the frailty score again frailty score of one to five um, gives you a better um, chance of surviving uh, if your respiratory rate is really high if your heart rate is high you have a pneumonia um, if it's inappropriate inappropriate niv you have a worse prognosis interesting figures i think um there mark and i think um if 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 nobody else reads anything out of the study, that's one slide they should most definitely read because uh, you could almost, um, at night when you're trying to decide which patient should have and which patient should have NIV, um, stratify them using that. If you wanted to be as clinical and as brutal as that.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. So I think I think it works in two ways for me. So if you have a whole group of factors, you've got you've just arrived in hospital with a diagnosis of COPD. You've got a moderate acidosis, not a severe acidosis. You're not particularly frail. And your respiratory rate's high, but not very high. And you're not tachycardic. Then actually, you're a great candidate for NIV. And actually, you'll probably do quite well. Whereas, if you've got any of the other factors working the opposite way, if you have a list of those, then the decision-making needs to be about, I think this NIV is quite likely to fail. So, first thing... Is it an appropriate treatment or is it not? And if it is an appropriate treatment, is this somebody who I think I should be sending to critical care? Because actually I want to be absolutely sure they're in, a, in the right environment to give them the best possible outcome. So I think it works on, on two levels. Firstly, to identify your brilliant candidate for NIV, but then on the other level to say, if this isn't a great candidate for NIV, should we not be treating them with ventilation at all, or should we be going to critical care? Mm.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a um, very important point. Um, it, and, and I would suggest to anyone listening to this podcast that you do uh, either read the report or listen to Mark's summary of it, which you can find on the NC pod uh, website, which I'll put a link to. There's also a, a YouTube video which is recorded at the Royal College of Anesthetists which is on uh, obviously YouTube. Um, I'll also put a link to that as well. So you can either just listen to Mark or you can uh, look and listen um, at the same time, depending where you are and how you want to do it. Um, I think there's an awful lot to come out of this report. Um, And I think um, Vicky, it sounds like to me, um, having been, you started in December, so you're what now 10 months down the line. Are you making a lot of progress? Is this something that you think is just going to be something you're involved in in your hospital or is it something that you're gonna be rolling out elsewhere as well?
2: So um, in terms of um, our like impacts on data, our data is improving um, and also um, around education, reaching out to a wider number of clinicians to um, ensure that we're spreading our education is also improving. Um, I definitely think this is something that um, we're going to roll out further. So, as I said, the the project is um, externally funded, so um, by a company called Clark, so um, who um, are a quality improvement um, a body, and our aim is to try and spread what we've done wider field outside of the Imperial, so that everyone can, um, if they want to use it, if it's relevant to their their practice or their trust to to be able to have access to what we've developed.
0: Okay, so how do we get access to that information?
2: So what will happen is once we've um tied everything up together um this information will be disseminated through an externally facing website and also will be um promoted via um the clark network uh, networks across um so we're involved in obviously northwest london um but we'll be involved um and spread across the clark network so um there will be access online for for other trusts to be able to um access all the resources that
0: we've developed fabulous one of the questions I was going to ask and I'll ask you both of this because it's something that occurred to me whilst I was reading the report um, is there is there a nationally recognized NIV course a little bit like for example I think of the alert course or the aim course which is run across the country is there something like that for NIV if there isn't should there be
1: So, uh, well the British Jurassic Society does run the course uh, to train people in delivering NIB. Uh, so, so yes, there is a course um, uh, well-established, well-recognized, with uh, some excellent uh, teachers, trainers on it. Um, so yes, that works on one level. Actually, um, could we do with rolling this out more widely and having access a bit like those other courses that you described? Almost certainly yes. Um, probably there is room for a bespoke course for a locality. Um, so teaching and training is is a key part of this. I have to say I do think uh, the local approach to improving quality, running a quality improvement project. Uh, when I when I set out to to establish uh, running this review. Um, at the end point of it, I hope that there may be room to do a scaled-up quality improvement project. I'm fascinated to know what Vicky and her team deliver uh, where she works. We are in the process of, uh, you know, I work in a hospital, we're not perfect. Um, there's stuff that we can do to improve our NIV service. And actually, we should all be using the ammunition, if you like, that this report provides to try and establish our QI approach. And then actually collaborating with other people who have worked out how to solve one piece of the jigsaw, if we've solved how to um, sort another piece, I think that would be a great way to move forward. Um, the one other thing that is happening, and it's not through the training, is the British Thoracic Society is about mm-hmm. to publish, uh, they've had a consultation period, about to publish some quality standards for acute NIV, which I think will also help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It sounds to me like uh, you and Vicky need to talk further at some point. So I'll, (laughs) I'll let you go away and do that. I think this has been a, I I love the NC pod stuff. I kind of uh, Mm -hmm. cut my teeth on the NC pod report onto the um, deteriorating patient many years ago. um, And I've always found their reports immensely useful because it gives you some tremendous insights into what we're doing or worryingly what we're not doing that we should be doing. Um, And I think this report does exactly that. I think it highlights a few areas that probably we could change without A massive amount of effort but just with a certain amount of consistency Um, and that would help improve the patient's outcomes quite dramatically I think Um, so I think moving forward that's something we should do mark if I could give you a budget of a
1: million pounds what would you do with it gosh Uh, you know what I I would I would start small and then scale up a QI project for NIV Um, and, and set up a, a wider collaborative because some of the other work that's been done in, for instance, emergency laparotomy, um, uh, just, just a thing that comes to mind straight away, and some of the stuff that we've been doing in our hospital are under the sign-up to safety umbrella uh, to deliver QI um, and deliver real changes in outcomes, um, I think this would lend itself to a project like that.
0: Okay. Excellent. Uh, Vicky, you're very much involved in a project like that by the sound of it. So um, I wish you all the best. It sounds fascinating. Please let us know when the Outward Facing website is available. Um, I'm assuming people are grabbing you to go to conferences here, there and everywhere to tell them about it.
2: Yeah. So we've started um, trying now we've got the predominant amount of, of the work done. We are now starting to try and disseminate and get the word out there a bit more.
0: Excellent. Okay. I won't take up any more of your time. Um, Thank you very, very much for speaking to me. Unfortunately, we couldn't get uh, Rachel or Emma here. The internet wasn't going to play with us, um, so we didn't manage to speak to them. Um, But I know they will both have a a lot of value to offer in this conversation, so maybe we can catch up with them in a future point. So I'm going to uh, roll up this episode now. I've kept you for 60 minutes, which is far too long. People are probably falling asleep in their cars by now, I would imagine, and crashing into various places. So, uh, Wakey, wakey, it's the end of the episode. Uh, it's been a fascinating one. I've really enjoyed it. I've got an awful lot from this, and if nothing else, um, it's made me read the NCPOD pod uh, report in great detail and uh, like I say I've learned a lot from it so what am I doing in the next few weeks well I'm off to Antwerp uh, for the International Fluid Academy um that's going to be a three-day conference and it's going to be all about fluids for three days Um, and then like uh, we just said I'm going to be at the Intensive Care Society state-of-the-art conference I know I keep banging on about this uh, one for anyone listening out there but uh, we as a social media team are becoming quite active now and we are trying to start some live streaming and getting a lot of people uh, involved from um, a virtual world as well so it's quite exciting we've got a new venue in Liverpool as well we're not in that horrible cold corridor that we were in before um and um i think it's liverpool it sounds like it could be quite an exciting venue so that's what's coming up i'm not going to take up any more of your time um, and i look forward to speaking to you soon bye-bye
2: you've been listening to critical care practitioner if you would like to comment on any of today's topics find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. tweet us at cc Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.